Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's show, Premier Danielle Smith has a seat in the legislature. She won the by-election in Brooks Medicine Hat last night. They call it Canada's Moonshot. We'll speak with Keith Halliday, who says that Canada's farming revolution, we could change the world. And we'll talk about a new information system being implemented at AHS. We'll tell you all about Connect Care. All right, some of you starting a, a good old-fashioned game of what about on the text line. We don't do that here. We've talked about that. So don't be asking me what Rachel Notley's percentage was in the last election. I don't know. And, and that's what I said. Uh, two weeks from now, a month from now, as we go into the uh, the general election, nobody will know what Danielle Smith's percentage was in this by-election either, and nobody will care. Nobody knows what Jason Kenney's was until I brought it. it, it we're talking about it today for analytical reasons, but at the end of the day, a win is a win, okay? So I don't know what Rachel Notley's was, and I don't suspect many people do, because it doesn't matter it's who won and who lost. But let's get some insight here from Melissa Cowett, who is the Western Canada Public Policy Professional and Principal of MC Consulting. Melissa, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Shay. Yeah, a lot of people saying today, you know, yeah, she won, but it wasn't as big a win as she might have expected. I mean, ultimately, who cares, right? I mean, a win is a win. Is that where we're at? I think so. You make a good point. There's a lot of, I see on social media this morning, a lot of people saying, you know, the NDP won the popular vote in Medicine Hat, um, signaling that they did well in the cities. But no, she won. She won with over 54% um, of the vote. She has a majority. Um, So, I mean, I think you can't get much more decisive than that. It's, It's a win. She doubled the votes of the NDP competitor, uh, more than doubled. So, yeah, I mean, okay, maybe it would have been a more resounding victory. And and I I don't know. But bottom line, um, in terms of the one question I have, Melissa, are you surprised by the voter turnout? I think it was about 30, it's about a third, 35 percent, somewhere around there for the premier of the province, the leader of the UCP. I, I would expect it would generate a little more excitement. Clearly, it didn't. Yeah, the the voter turnout is definitely lower than we would see in a general election when there's a lot of energy around the campaign, where there's a lot of attention around the campaign. Um, And, you know, Danielle Smith, she won the leadership um, race on a Thursday and the by-election was called on a Tuesday. So there wasn't a whole lot of runway. In fact, until the day after she won the leadership, people didn't even really know where she would be running in a by-election. So the Mm -hmm. momentum that you would typically get before a by-election is called that a candidate would have, you didn't have that here. And um, so I think, you know, she kind of, she had to hit the ground running. There wasn't a lot of time to build uh, momentum. And and I think, you know, they did what they could. The other, the other campaigns, um, you know, the, the NDP, for example, has nominated several candidates across the province. And so those candidates have 
being already at work um, in terms of engaging voters. So, you know, the voter turnout definitely lower than you would probably want, but by-elections do have typically lower voter turnout, so it's not entirely surprising, I would say. Is this sort of, okay, we've got that out of the way, that was a formality almost, it was in a writing that we knew she was going to win, and now we can actually get down to the real campaigning for the next election, trying to do some governing in the meantime, but all eyes on what happens in May, is that sort of, okay, that's out of the way, now let's get down to the real job at hand? I think it's this tag team effort between governing and what's going to happen in the 2023 election, because those are inextricably linked because this is a new premier. So she can't just now have a seat in the legislature and basically only talk about campaign promises. She's going to have to build a bit of a record um, over the next few months as well. And, and so that's that's why this seat was so important, so that she can sit in the legislature for the throne speech on November 29th, so that she can um, be there introducing important pieces of legislation. So I don't think that it's smart. It would be smart for the government to totally just focus on the campaign. They do have to build a track record. And the premier does um, have to build that familiarity and trust with Albertans. Right now, a lot of the relationship that she has with the electorate is based on things um, that have happened years ago. Some things that have happened in the past few weeks that she's made mistakes on, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But if she wants to reset that relationship, she has to she has to put in the work. And I think she's willing to do that from what I've seen. Uh, how important is it within the party? There was a lot of talk that the party would be looking close. We Clearly, there are some current concerns about some of the positions that she's taken. And we've seen it play out recently with Nadine Wellwood, who shared a lot of the same views that Daniel Smith did, uh, was told she's not allowed to run for the UCP. Clearly, there is a faction within the party leadership that still has some some nervous energy about all of this. Yeah, and it's it's correct to have nervous energy because we are now shifting to a point where people are watching, all eyes are on the yeah. UCP, and it is to a larger audience. And people, people are um, a little bit frayed from all of the arguing, regardless of which side of these issues you fall on during COVID, et cetera. So, um, you know, the, the, the goal for the UCP and any political party, frankly, is to be recruiting candidates that can elicit that broad base of support. Um, and so that's what it appears they're doing. Smith is in a bit of an easier position to rebuild that reputation with Albertans because when you're sitting um, in the premier's chair, you have a lot more power to to try and do things that um, that prove what your beliefs are now than somebody who's who's running in a in a um, in a riding election, for example. And so, um, you know, you see some of you see you see that as a struggle, absolutely. But I I think that she, from what I've seen at least, in, in the tones that you hear in the speech, she does acknowledge that that is something that she needs. Um, to be a leader on um, so that when things are happening with other candidates, she has sort of some, some ground to stand on with respect to that. Hey, Melissa, I want to ask you your thoughts on the Alberta party. I mean, I didn't anticipate that Barry Morishita would win the by-election, but I'm really surprised he only pulled 16.5% in. What is his... I mean, if he's going to get support anywhere, uh, it would be in Brooks. And it, uh, this has to be seen as nothing less than a crushing defeat for the Alberta party, doesn't it? I think so. I think a lot of people, you know, perhaps a year and a half or so ago, were thinking that the Alberta party would maybe reemerge as being the sort of PC party of of this decade and, and sort of be that moderate party that's, you know, not so far right, not so far left, 
speaking to those Albertans, but, um, you know, there, there are a few things I think that indicate that they don't have the momentum that some people would think. First of all, um, Janet Brown released a poll a couple of weeks ago showing that they're polling, you know, at like 3% yeah. um, provincially. So that's like, that's, that's not competitive. You look at how many candidates they've nominated as well. They have not nominated very many candidates. In fact, the Green Party has nominated more candidates than they have at this stage. So you see that plus this um, this situation in, in um, Brooks Medicine Hat. And I just don't think that there's the momentum behind the Alberta Party. I also think it's harder to break through um, for the Alberta Party because the NDP has really began to occupy that space. Like they have moved into the center big time. And in fact, if you look at the um, the tones of the UCP policies and the NDP policies, um, in in fact, they are quite similar. The tone, I think, is a bit different in terms of like how they would approach some of these issues. Mm-hmm. But from an issue perspective, like affordability, healthcare, um, um, jobs and economy, these are these are the same issues that both of those parties are talking about. So I think it makes it really difficult for a third party like the Alberta Party to break through. It could it be also, and this is just my own thinking. Maybe there's some of we voted against things in this province. Quite, I know in speaking with the audience, there's a lot of people who would never vote NDP, and I think they the the fear for an NDP government, or if you're an NDP supporter, the fear of a UCP government is so strong that even if you're not all in with the UCP or the NDP, you don't want to risk letting whoever the one that you don't like in is. So you don't want to quote unquote waste your vote by throwing it to the Alberta party because you want to close the door more than you actually want to vote for something. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point, Shay, and something that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I don't think in 2022 in Alberta, um, it's enough to just vote anymore. We've seen the way that both the UCP and the NDP have evolved over time. The UCP has moved um, further right the NDP has moved further center, which if you are a traditional NDP voter, you might be thinking, hey, this party is a little bit too centrist for me. I want it to be a little bit further left. Mm-hmm. But the only way really to, to do that and to make sure that political parties are reflecting what more than just the sort of extremes or the um, the far ends of the spectrum want is to really actually just start getting involved in party politics. And that doesn't mean that you have to run as a candidate. It doesn't mean that you yeah. have to you know, every week be donating your time, but just really showing up to conventions, showing up to um, to things where people's opinions on these topics are being solicited, because I, I really do think that in in today's political environment, if we want to vote for something, we do have to try and help shape that, even though people will probably make fun of me for being idyllic in that sense. But I do think it's really important, especially if we do see our political parties maybe not reflecting um most of what we want. There's nothing wrong with a little idealism when it comes to politics these days, Melissa. I think it's a good thing. We all can vision something much better than the environment that we've created for ourselves now. So uh, I, I'm with you on that one. And and as always, I appreciate you joining us this morning. Thanks for being here. You might remember decades ago, it came up recently too, um, President John F. Kennedy challenged Americans to be their best, promising to put a man on the moon, right? The so-called moonshot. Uh, Joe Biden brought it out again uh, this year when it comes to fighting cancer and slashing cancer deaths in half. Um, it's become to mean anything that uh, is an extraordinary challenge that can lead a nation to greatness, basically. Putting it out there saying, we're going to do this. 
Our next guest is one of the authors of a piece in the Financial Post that argues that Canada's moonshot is here, and it's in agriculture. We're going to be chatting with Keith Halliday, a director with Boston Consulting Group's Center for Canada's Future. Keith, uh, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Hi, Shay. Thanks for the invitation. Um, okay, to start, when we talk about Canada's agriculture industry, it's massive, right? I mean, it is a giant, giant sector of our economy already, isn't it? It is, absolutely. I think most Canadians don't realize how big and important it is because, you know, 200,000 farms, but before that, if you think about it end-to-end, you got the fertilizer industry, you have the processing, you have the packaged goods, grocery, all of us cooking at home, disposing of the waste. You know, all of that is actually a huge share of our economy and also of our carbon emissions. And so when we've got all of this going on and all the economic activity, things obviously we know, like every sector of our economy right now, there's obstacles. There, there, there's challenges, right? I mean, we know we, we heard that this was probably the most expensive crop ever planted in Canada, the one that we just got through. It turned out well in the end, but there's some challenges right now, aren't there? Yeah, there are. And, you know, we were talking with our friends at RBC and the Aero Food Institute out east at the University of Guelph about the challenges in the agriculture sector. But And we started to, decided to do this study together. But the more we got into it, the more sort of optimistic and excited we got. And that's where the moonshot idea comes in here, because we think Canada has the potential to really lead the world in two things. Uh, number one, actually producing way more food, because there's going to be two billion more people on planet Earth in 2050 than there are today, and they've got to eat. And then number two, do that while also reducing our carbon emissions, because climate change is, you know, a huge challenge for the planet and for Canada. Um, and as we talked, looked at what people were saying out there, they were talking about, oh, we need to reduce carbon emissions or we need to do this or that. But we think we need to do both. We need to figure out, and this is the wicked challenge that makes it a moonshot, we need to produce more food while cutting our carbon emissions. But that is the new reality, right? That's the new normal. That's the challenge that needs to be met going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And so when we when we dug into this, you know, the, the agriculture system, I think, you know, it, it's very complex, a lot of moving parts. You think about, you know, there's fertilizer, there's the emissions from, you know, tractors and on-farm power sources. There is uh, the, the emissions like the, the, uh, the emissions of manure from cattle and what they call enteric fermentation, which is, you know, the burps and farts from cattle, which have a lot of methane. doesn't sound like that would be a big deal. Actually, if you look at the numbers, it is a big deal. Um, so, you know, reducing all of these things is going to require, you know, it's going to be difficult. But the, the thing that came out from our study was that, number one, a lot of the things that Alberta and Canadian farmers are doing already are already managing those carbon emissions down quite impressively. But then also there's this huge and innovative sector of the Canadian technology and innovation space. There's scientists at universities, startups, scale-ups, you know, it's robotics, it's plant science, it's all, you know, all kind of, you know, satellite uh, you know, monitoring of uh, the landscape and, and et cetera, et cetera. So a whole bunch of really high-tech and innovative things are going on where Canada is actually a leader. Like we looked at all of the private equity and venture capital deals in the agricultural space around the world, and Canada gets 3% of that, which is basically double our share of the global economy. So there's a lot going on in that space that really makes us optimistic about this. So would it be fair to say, you know, some of these challenges that we've talked about can also be seen as opportunities, and we're already stepping into that space to, to meet the challenge and seize the opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, there's one, uh, one thing that came up repeatedly that your some of your, the listeners to the show might be driving by right now, which is Nutrien's Redwater Facility. 
right? Like they are, you know, for a couple of years now, they've been capturing the carbon from the fertilizer production process and storing it through the Alberta carbon trunk line underground. And uh, that is actually a world leading kind of facility. You know, we're an international consulting firm. So we've, we've been talking to colleagues in other countries and clients and they're saying, like, look at this facility in Canada, how innovative it is. So I think that's just one example of how Canada has an example, ability to, to, you know, do it at home but then also to ex- export that expertise and these low-carbon products around the world could be, a, you know, it's both an obligation for us to help feed all the people on the planet. Uh, we've been doing that for, you know, more than 100 years in Canada. Uh, but it's also a big economic opportunity for farmers and for, you know, the Alberta technology sector. Um, where does government and, and policy and those sorts of things, we know they can be a help, they can be a hindrance. What do we need to do on the policy front to make sure that we're not getting in the way here? Yeah, so this is a big, uh, both an opportunity and a challenge because, you know, one of the recommendations of our report is that we need a more joined up form of partnership between the private sector, the researchers, and provincial and federal government agencies because, you know, the government is setting some targets for Canada to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions, move forward. It also has some policies to support, you know, agriculture technology innovation, farmers, you know, making these changes. But one thing that came out super clear in our report is that, you know, there needs to be more support and economic incentives and, and risk support for farmers because they're, they're going to be the ones that are going to be maybe changing how they put on fertilizer, changing how they manage their soil and their products. This is not free. It's real effort and cost for them. And buyers of food, government agencies, um, financial institutions need to recognize that and, and share the burden fairly. Are we doing that? Are we being proactive here? Are we doing the things we need to do? Or are we going to be playing catch-up? Are there other countries that are already doing some of these things you're talking about? Well, there's some countries, um, you know, for example, the Netherlands, even Singapore, that are, you know, very active in the agricultural technology space and maybe are a step ahead of us. But also Canada is a step ahead of a lot of other countries. You know, for example, that nutrient plant, that kind of facility does not exist in a lot of countries in terms of taking carbon out of fertilizer. So we're making progress. You know, the glass is half full, but there is more to be done. And I, I think, you know, one of the final wrap-up recommendations in our report is that um, agriculture is actually a sexy, innovative space these days. It's very exciting. More young people should get into it. And Canada overall should think about agriculture uh, uh, not just as something to, uh, that feeds us, which it does, but as kind of a national mission. Like if Canada can show the way for countries in Europe and other parts of the world and for, you know, certain states in the U.S. to follow our path, producing more food while taking out carbon emissions, that would be a fantastic accomplishment for our country. And and I think maybe we should be a little bit more bold about saying that. I, I think you're right. Uh, I, I'm wondering how specific you get in those recommendations. If you take a look at Kennedy, we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Joe Biden said, I think we're going to cut cancer deaths in the next 20 years. Something like that. Like he gave specific markers. How specific do you get? Well, in our report, we talk about how if, if we're just, if Canada's just to maintain its share of the global calories that are out there, uh, as 10 billion people are on the planet, we have to increase our food output by 26% by 2050. And we also have, uh, we also have some analysis that suggests, you know, using a mix of existing practices and high tech, you know, we could reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from our food production by about 40%. And, you know, that's going to require hard work. But I think it sort of dimensionalizes or gives you an idea of the size mm-hmm. of the the change that would be needed um, and the opportunity out there. 
It's very interesting, and, and it, it is such a huge sector. You're right, and 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 the advances sort of happen. Forgive the word organically, but I mean they do. They the farmers sort of take, and their skill set has changed so much over the years. Right, we have the impression of what farming is. It's not. It's high tech. There's multiple skill sets, so they're positioned to do this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we did a podcast series, the the RBC Disruptors podcast series, which had a lot of interviews with farmers, including from Alberta. And it was amazing to hear them talk about their business. And I think a lot of my colleagues in Toronto, if I could say it, were a little bit surprised at how high tech and sophisticated um, these agribusinesses were. And I think the other thing that came out for us is there's no one size fits all answer here because, you know, being a canola producer or a wheat producer in Alberta is totally different than, you know, tomatoes in a greenhouse in southern Ontario yeah. or potatoes on Prince Edward Island. Different technologies, different cost pressures, different markets. That also makes moving forward on this more complicated. And I think it means we're going to need to have more sort of regional partnerships and, and, you know, crop region specific, you know, projects. But, you know, uh, it's all possible. Interesting. Very interesting stuff. Uh, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate being here, Keith. No, thanks a lot, Jay. Have a great day. You too. That's Keith Halliday, who is the director of Boston Consulting Group's Center for Canada's Future. I like it. You know, a moonshot. Let's take a look at these challenges, call them opportunities, and see what we can do to capitalize. And he's right. I mean, our agriculture industry is massive. It's enormous. And there's all kinds of diverse skill sets, all kinds of technology. So we're already jumping into that space. Right now, I want to have a conversation about something that's been in the works for years, actually. This has been going on for a long, long time. Um, basically, it's a new system that Alberta, well, it's not new, like I say, but newish, uh, that Alberta Health Services has been implementing for some time. Basically, all of your medical information ends up in a system that doctors can access, you can access, lots of people can access uh, to make things a little bit better. I, I'm I, I'm making it sound a little more glib than it is. There's, it's it's more than that. But uh, this weekend, uh, a big chunk of the Calgary system came on board with something called Connect Care. So we're pretty much done here. Let's find out exactly what it is, how it works, and why it's going to make things better. We're chatting with Dr. Jeremy Thiel, who is the Chief Medical Information Officer for AHS. Doctor, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you being here. It's my pleasure. Good morning. Um, let, let's just start. Connect Care is what this um, information system is called. What is it? What does it do? Great question. And as you said, this project has been underway for several years. Uh, the first launch of Connect Care was in November 2019, and we have a series of launches uh, all over the province. Will be finished in the fall of 2024. So this multi-year project. Its goal is to consolidate health information that was previously spread across hundreds, even thousands of systems across Alberta um, into a single common healthcare information system for AHS. And this is the largest initiative of its kind in Canada. Uh, Its provincial scope enables the whole healthcare team, including patients and families, to access the best and most complete picture of their health information throughout their care journey, no matter where in Alberta people receive care from AHS. So, yeah, who can access it? I mean, the patient can, but does it go right through uh, pharmacists, doctors, nurses? I mean, who can access that system and get our information? The uh, AHS staff and physicians use the system every day to provide care, 
But there is also a uh, portal, a patient and family portal called My AHS Connect that patients and families can access their health information as well as appointments and even communicate with the healthcare team. And that system provides real-time information. So even in the case that someone's admitted in the hospital, they can actually see uh, information flowing in uh, in real time. So it really helps to engage patients in their care. Mm-hmm. And this system also helps to provide personalized uh, information and education that connects patients to the things that they need um, to care for the particular health conditions they may have as an individual. What does the patient need to do to be able to access that? Is it a website? Is it an app? How can you get involved in that if you want to? The first step is you'll need to have a My Alberta Digital Identity, or an ADI for short. Many people would already have that because they're likely accessing Alberta Health systems. For example, uh, during COVID, um, when people were looking for vaccination scheduling and so forth, they would have needed to have a My Alberta digital identity and also be able to log in through there. So uh, that same um, identification uh, allows you to sign up. Once you get inside the um, My Health Records portal, you can see uh, the access to to the MyHS Connect. In terms of the system and how doctors use it and uh, how it's used within hospital, how does this uh, improve things there? What's the upside to the healthcare providers? There's a huge upside to healthcare providers because this system is much more than just replacing paper with a computer. This is a system that actually helps to transform care because the system provides information that is individualized to each patient and provides guidance for healthcare providers on the latest evidence for tests and treatments for those conditions, as well as best practices to improve quality, safety, and patient outcomes. So I think that's the part that's really exciting, where the computer system becomes another partner in helping to improve care that we provide day-to-day. Um, I mean, like we say, this has been going on for years. It's massive. It is enormous. I imagine there's been some bumps in the road. Is it getting better as we go along? I mean, it's a process, right? It is a process. And this being our fifth launch, the team uh, for Connect Care is very experienced at supporting people through the change, making sure that all of the uh, correct checks are in place before the system is launched, mm-hmm. that everybody is trained and ready to go. And I'm at the Foothills Medical Center today. This place is just humming with positivity and excitement. People are really happy to be on the new system. Of course, whenever a large group of people undergoes a major change in the way they work, there are always going to be some steps to learning. And that may slow down care for a little while as people learn the system. So we have been asking for patients from our patients. Uh, we move forward, uh, but we have super users, people who are specially trained, who are available throughout all the facilities implemented in this launch, and they're at the elbow of our providers and staff, helping them use the system as efficiently as possible. This launch actually um, had 135 sites go live with uh, 22,500 new users and also um, 2,774 healthcare providers. 
including physicians. So that gives you an idea of the scale. And now we have about 75,000 staff and physicians using ConnectCare across the province, which is about 60% of the total 122,000 staff and physicians at AHS. Wow. Okay. All right. Um, I'm just wondering, and I'm getting a lot of questions on the text line, as you might expect, about security and how about how, how, how can we be sure that people aren't just accessing my medical information? I mean, obviously, that's something that's been taken into consideration with the program, right? Yes, of course. Yes, privacy and security is very important to us. And uh, so we ensure that all of our systems are secured properly and following the requirements under the Health Information Act in Alberta. And in this exercise of consolidating many, many, many provincial systems into a single one, this actually helps us to create a stronger um layer of protection, if you will, around the system information because we have one place to protect instead of thousands. So it's much uh, more straightforward to ensure uh, we have maximum protection and all the right um, checks and balances on that single system. I see. So, I mean, this information has always existed. People have always had access to it, but through a million different ways, and now there's one central location where you can monitor it. That makes sense. Yes, and we have auditing tools. We even have something called the Smart Audit Tool that uh, can proactively identify uh, any inappropriate access and bring that to our attention. So we're using some some more modern technology there. It's not just manual auditing. Um, So we really are taking that piece very seriously. But, you know, although we always want to be mindful of, of privacy and protecting that information, it's also important in order to improve care, to share that information with the people who are involved in in someone's care. So let me give you an example. Let's say your family member was very sick and in a rural area in Alberta, and they needed to be transported by STARS to, let's say, a critical care facility in Calgary. Because of Connect Care, now that critical care physician can consult with the physician in the rural facility um, even before transport happens, they can see all the same information. They can uh, plan treatment even before that uh, patient arrives mm-hmm. at the critical care facility. They can get all the orders in the system so that the team can get right to work as soon as that patient arrives in the critical care facility. So um, by sharing that information right down to the, the uh, specific details of the vital signs and so forth, uh, we're able to, to really... Uh, provide the most efficient and effective care way better than we ever could before because of how efficiently that information can be shared. We're even looking at the point now of uh, where we'll be able to uh, have, we don't yet have this, but we want to actually build the transport-based information. So as that patient's being transferred to the critical care facility, even during, uh, let's say, the air transport, we would have the real-time vital signs information as the patient arrives. Um, we know there's a bunch of different pressure points going on in the system right now. You mentioned some of how it can streamline, you know, if you're, if you're doing transports and stuff. What about, like, people trying to find a doctor or, you know, ER wait times, those sorts of things? Could this possibly be a way to, you know, not solve these problems but make them a little less severe? Well, certainly appreciate that things like ED wait times are, are very much on Albertans' minds, and, uh, and we, we take that seriously. We're doing our best to, uh, to keep care as prompt as possible. 
The Connect Care system was not specifically designed to address ED wait times. There are other projects that uh, that look at that, but I think it's fair to say that because our emergency physicians with Connect Care now have access, instant access to a much more complete picture of a person's health, mm-hmm. their their current health problems, their medications, etc. The patient doesn't need to tell that whole story all over again. Um, the the providers also have more efficient uh, access to uh, referring, for example, to follow-up clinics or referring to other facilities as necessary. So these sorts of things are efficiencies that over time could result in improved DD wait times, but um, not necessarily is the system specifically designed for that. It is something we would hope would be a good outcome, though. Sure. Uh, last one, I'll let you go, and it's just from a bunch of people on the text line. I'm not sure why. Can they access test results? And specifically, they're asking about diagnostic imaging and CTs. Like, you know, how much access does the patient have in terms of that kind of information? Yes. So, uh, laboratory tests that are conducted through AHS facilities, those results are available. Diagnostic imaging um, as well, yes. So, okay. Um, yeah, so these things are available, and um, I can understand why this would be important for patients to be able to to find. Uh, we want to make this information available so that people can better understand and be involved in their care. Okay, excellent. Great information, doctor. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.